Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. I'm your host, Jonah Saller. And today I'm joined by two guests, which is unusual. I typically only have one, but I'm grateful for both of these gentlemen coming on my show. Um, I've got my deacon, uh, Chandler Wiley, here, and Father Harmon um, from Montana. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. Awesome. And so uh, we're going to be talking about the subject of, of liturgy today, a very, very important subject, one that I think is sometimes neglected in theological dialogue. Um, and so before we get into it, though, I'm just going to give uh, Deacon Chandler and uh, Father Harmon uh, a brief moment to introduce themselves and tell you guys a little bit about themselves. So we'll start with Deacon Chandler. Yeah, I'm Chandler Wiley, um, pastor at Emmaus Anglican Church, planted in 2020 in Maricopa, Arizona, and love the liturgy and love preaching and glad to be here. Great. Yeah. Father. Yeah. I'm, I'm Father Harmon. I'm a, as you said, in Missoula, Montana, I serve at uh, community of St. Columba as a curate. Um, I'm also the catechist and I oversee um, kind of our, our discipleship from every level from adults to teens and children. Um, and uh, I'm very passionate about liturgy. It was discovering Anglican liturgy was actually a huge part of my coming back to faith when I was in college. And we can get more than that if we want to, but yeah, so I'm really excited to be on this podcast. Great, yeah. Well, thank you both again for joining me. Um, as we get into the subject, I think maybe a good place to start would just be to kind of go over the question, what, what is liturgy? What, what is liturgical worship? Hmm. So we could start there. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it's, uh, I was reflecting before we got started on how uh, it seems liturgy is sort of a fad these days. And um, I've heard so many different descriptions of what liturgy is that you could almost say, you know, if everything's liturgy, then nothing's liturgy. Um, but uh, I've done um, actually quite a lot of research into some liturgical theologians. Um, and uh, my favorite definition of liturgy that I've come across so far is uh, probably the most pretentious as well. Um, so I'll throw it out there and we can, we can kind of uh, chip away at it if we want to. Um, but uh, this is from a, a scholar named David Fagerberg. He's a, he's a professor at Notre Dame. Um, and he says, liturgy is the perichoresis of the Trinity canonically extended to invite our synergistic ascent into deification. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you get that, right? We're all good. Yeah. <laughs> break, break that down a little bit for us. <laughs> yeah. So um, essentially um, we start with, you know, liturgy is the perichoresis of the Trinity. So this is the idea that if God is love, he is an, he is an eternal relationship of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that from eternity, God has existed as the Father eternally loving and worshiping the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Son eternally loving and worshiping the Father and the Spirit, the Spirit eternally loving and worshiping the Son and the Father. Um, and uh, because God is love, he is always desiring to, um, to bring... Um, whatever is outside of relationship with him into relationship with him. And so uh, liturgy is what happens when God creates and desires to bring his creation into relationship with himself. Uh, and so uh, that's um, actualized in a formal setting um, when through the work of Christ, um, God brings his image bearers into, um, into the body of Christ. And therefore as members of the body of Christ, we have been brought into that, that relationship within the Trinity and he invites us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, to join that that love and worship. 
That's great. Wow. Yeah, that's really concise. Do you have anything, Chandler? Yeah, the definition that Father Harmon gave, I would maybe summarize as participation <clears throat> in the, the fellowship of the Trinity uh, by right. the power of the Spirit through the Son. So participation is usually the word I use. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've heard it said that everybody has a liturgy, thinking of mm -hmm. the evangelical or Protestant church, right. whatever church you go to, there's some form of worship or a liturgy. But, you know, I, I don't think that's true. Not everybody has a liturgy, because if your form of worship is not inviting a participation into the, the work of the people of worshiping God and, and being in that fellowship, then really what you have is a pattern less of a liturgy. I don't know if that's accurate right. to what you think, Father Harmon. Yeah. yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. I think, uh, again, this falls into what I was saying about if everything's liturgy, then nothing is liturgy. Um, the, the liturgy is meant to move us through a story, right? So it's meant to get us from point A to point B. And uh, a lot of um, worship services have a, have a pattern, um, but they may not necessarily move us from point A to point B. Um, and I think that that's, a, that's one of the key factors that we're looking for when we say like this is, this is certainly a liturgical worship. Um, now, that may look very formal. It may look very informal. Um, but one of the key things we're looking for in liturgy is, is it moving me um, through a story from point A to point B, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think that does. So for both of you, what would what would that look like on a practical level? Like what would separate out, say, a church that has a pattern of worship, but wouldn't necessarily fall into the category of liturgy? What does it look like to move from point A to point B? What, mm -hmm. what is that? Are you talking story? You're talking gospel story from uh, like center to redeem, to child of God, to sent out into the world, fed by the presence of Jesus? Is that where you're, the story yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's one way of approaching it. Another way that I've heard it approached is um, liturgy should habituate us every time we enter into it to um, yeah the story of redemption, right? So um, creation, fall, uh, redemption, consummation, right? Yeah. To, to break it down very briefly, you know. And so um, to to give you a, a concrete example, uh, the liturgy of the Anglican. Um, prayer book the for the Eucharist, for instance, uh, we begin um, by saying, you know, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Uh, and so that's like the context, you could almost say creation, right? So God has created his kingdom. We have been entered into that, into the divine life of God the Father. And then we read um, the summary of the law. And the first thing we say is, Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us. Because we've, we've fallen. We can't keep that law. Right. And so you already have creation um, of the kingdom and the life of the kingdom as uh, embodied in the summary of the law. You have the Kyrie where we've fallen and we pray for mercy. Right. And then the rest of the story, um, you, you can almost see the rest of the biblical meta narrative represented in the liturgy where you have the scriptures that are spoken over us. And the same with the, the prophets um, spoke the word of God over his people. Um, you have the sermon where you could almost see Christ um, uh, revealing the meaning of the scriptures, as we saw on the road to Emmaus. Um, and then we have um, the Holy Eucharist, uh, which is, of course, inviting us into the Supper of the Lamb. Um, and then I like to point out that actually the end of the liturgy uh, is the beginning. Mm. Um, and so uh, we actually see this. Uh, ancient prayers were always named for the first few words in the prayer. Um, for instance, you have the Our Father um, for the the Lord's prayer. Um, 
the word mass, for instance, for uh, in the West, the liturgy of the Holy Eucharist comes from the very last phrase um, in the, the Holy Eucharist where we say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Um, that word is missie, mission, right? You are sent. And so I like to, I like to say that that's actually where the Holy Eucharist liturgy begins. Um, and at the end is when we receive Holy Communion. And so what that means is that actually end of Holy Eucharist launches us into the rest of the week, which is actually part of our liturgy, part of the Holy Eucharist liturgy that gets caught up into the next Sunday, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, uh, I, w- I want to follow up and kind of take that idea of the liturgy beginning, quote unquote, at the at the going out, the sending forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people, myself included, I grew up evangelical. And for me, Sunday was my time of worship after that. You know, you go on with your life until the next Sunday. And so I think the idea of the liturgical life being this ever-present reality um, mm-hmm. throughout your week um, is very foreign to a lot of people. So kind of if you could dissect that a little bit, what does, it, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, do you have any thoughts, Deacon Chandler, before I get going again? Yeah. <laughs> I told John I might just defer to you in this discussion, but well, I was really quick back to like what distinguishes a pattern from a liturgy. Mm. What are the key elements? You know, so you know the confession of sin is an element that you find in a liturgy that would probably be missing in a pattern because it's not moving you from into redemption or into repentance. Or for I think the Eucharist would probably be missing in a in something that's not liturgical because there's no participation in the body of Christ without that, that Holy communion. And so I think those would be some distinguishing. Yeah. Things. Was that what you were looking for? Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. Go Sorry. Ahead. Um, I think a really good example um, that I give people is, have you guys come across, um, I'm going to get in trouble with some of my friends for this, uh, but have you come across uh, every moment, Holy that book? Um, I think it's by the rabbit room. Um it's kind of, no, I have not, no. okay. um, it's uh, my parents love that book. They gift it to everyone. So I'm going to get in trouble with them if they, if they hear this podcast, <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's purported, it's, it's purported to be this kind of book of liturgies um, for ordinary moments. And so they have like a, a liturgy for making coffee in the morning. They have a liturgy for burying a family pet, that kind of thing. Um, and um, really it's a book of written prayers and just I think one misconception is that we tend to think of liturgy as, is a written prayer. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's it. Um, but each of these, uh, these rites, um, each of these quote unquote liturgies in this book, um, they're beautifully written poetic prayers, but they don't, they don't move you from point A to point B. Right. Um, they, they may name emotions, which is why, why I think a lot of people really respond well to this book is because, um, it's, uh, it's very expressive and puts words to um, emotions that someone might be feeling uh, for instance, when burying a family pet. Um, but it doesn't actually move you um, in a story uh, from a point of say um, grief to a point of um, naming the meaning of death to the point of um, offering that grief unto God, right? Which is what the, the funeral rite um, in the, the BCP does. Um, and, uh, because of that, we, 
also, I think another distinguishing factor is, um, let's see, Cardinal Ratzinger and Aidan Kavanaugh are the liturgical theologians I've, I've read a good deal of. And something that I think is very important um, that they name for liturgy is that liturgy is not emotionally coercive. Um, it doesn't um, push out emotion, I provide, but it provides space for it, right? Um, and a lot of what I've noticed in some um, patterns of worship is that um, they may be um, foist a particular emotional response, um, or at least are, are meant to elicit a certain emotional response, um, whereas liturgy is meant to be timeless, uh, Right. And so uh, any uh, you, you can show up in any sort of emotional state to a liturgy and be moved from point A to point B. Um, and so maybe we can distinguish between a liturgy being moving versus a liturgy moving me through a story, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is that tracking? Yeah. Um, and so I think I'm getting to answer your question about what is that um, liturgy throughout life, kind of a, a life shaped by liturgy look like? Um And this kind of gets to this. This might help me to um, make more clear what I mean when I say that if everything is liturgy, then nothing is liturgy. Um, because what I just said was, if the if the Holy Eucharist liturgy begins at the dismissal and then carries out throughout the, throughout the week, that might seem like I'm saying actually all of life is um, liturgy. Um, and there's a difference between saying all of life is within the liturgy than there is from saying everything in life is, is a liturgy, if that makes sense. Um, and so, um, again, if liturgy is meant to be the perichoresis of the Trinity canonically ex in, uh, extended to invite our synergistic ascent into deification, um, then what we're actually talking about here is that um, the liturgy of the Holy Eucharist um, is meant to train us in um, inhabiting the love of God in all aspects of our life. Right. Um, in the same way that uh, it's, it's like a, it's like a practice, you know, um, if I want to be a good soccer player, I practice as often as I can. Um, but that doesn't mean that I can be practicing every single moment of my life. Uh, but the goal is, is that I practice to such a point that all the movements, um, the strategies that I would play in a game are actually part of my second nature. So at the drop of the hat, I could play um, a really good, good game of soccer. Right. Um, and so the point of liturgy is almost like, um, practicing the presence of God, so to speak. Um, so that when I've gotten used to encountering God at a ritual table with my fellow believers in bread and wine, um, I might eventually become so habituated at finding God in that place, um, that whenever I sit down to have breakfast, um, or lunch or dinner with my family or friends, I now, um, had been habituated to find story, to find, to find the story of the gospel, even in that place, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The word you said was participation and just thinking like, okay, not everything is liturgy, mm -hmm. but in everything there is a participation with Christ. Right. And so this liturgy brings that reality to the forefront so that when you're, what's the right word? not doing the liturgy, mm -hmm. you still are able to recognize and participate in the presence of Jesus. So. Right. Right. Absolutely. And the, um, 
I think the point that's, that's really beautiful to, um, to highlight is uh, Alexander Schmemann points this out in his book for the life of the world. Um, this idea that what it means to be made in the image of God is to be um, priests of the kingdom of God. Um, all of us, this is, and this is what um, we, we mean when we talk about the priesthood of, of believers. Um, and what that means is that all of us are liturgists. We're, we're meant, uh, meant to be, um, you're meant to be priests, right? And all of life eventually is meant to be a liturgy. Uh, the problem is that we live in a fallen world um, where we ourselves often resist uh, our vocation as priests and uh, and those around us and the world around us, in fact, is going against the grain of what is created for. And so I, I might even say that uh, we can't say that all of life is liturgy until the New Jerusalem, mm. right? Um, until we have become the liturgists, the priests of the kingdom of God that we are made to be. Um, and we have been perfected in that vocation um, in Christ. Uh, until then, we can't say that all of life is a liturgy um, because all of life has not yet been caught up into the New Jerusalem. Mm. That makes sense. Are we getting too abstract? No, I, th I think that's really <laughs> good. Yeah, th this is going to be one of those conversations I'm going to have to pause and like collect my thoughts as we're going. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, that's that's really good. Um, I think for I, I I really do like the word participation because I think mm -hmm. it kind of captures maybe what I've felt for a long time has been lacking in in sort of the evangelical upbringing that I had is when I when I look at the pattern of worship there mm -hmm. there is a sense in which it stops at the natural level in a sense you know where if a, if a non-Christian comes in, he can, he can listen to a sermon, he can take notes, he can open the Bible, he can even grow in his knowledge about God, but he'll never be able to transcend into that supernatural apart from this divine participation. And that's something that the liturgy intentionally fosters mm -hmm. um, that I, I've found lacking. And so there is a sense in which, um, I don't know if the idea of the natural supernatural divide is kind of a something that comes into the conversation here, but the idea that, that the liturgy is where the supernatural and the natural meet in this profound way and kind of the, the um, I guess you could even say climactic way that, that points to this eschatological reality of total mm -hmm. and perfect union. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm uh any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to work out a thought of my own mind right now because I want to be charitable to um, our evangelical brothers and sisters because I, I know having been an evangelical myself that I would say in the even in that pattern worship um, we would say there is an encounter between the natural and supernatural that's happening right. um, but I think maybe to get at what we mean by saying there's uh, there's not participation in the manner that we're talking about um, is to get it also the question is what is the church? Um, because if the church does liturgy, then we also, also have to ask what is the church? Um, and especially in the evangelical Protestant tradition since the reformation, um, there's been a tendency to reduce the church to a sociological entity, right? That uh, we are, we are merely the collection of individuals who have put their faith in Jesus. And so the real supernatural, natural interaction is what happens between me as an individual with the Lord um, or with his Holy Spirit and worship, uh, whereas the gathering of the church is merely a sociological phenomenon. Um, does that make sense? 
I think so. Yeah. And so, um, if that's the case, uh, this also kind of gets into, um, if we ask, you know, who does the liturgy, is it, is it individuals or is it the church? Um, I think from a, a more, um, a tradition coming from the great tradition, such as Anglicanism, we would say that the church is the one, um, at liturgy, um, and the individual participates insofar as they're a member of the church. Right. Um, and then this again, kind of gets into that ridiculous quote that I keep saying, um, the church participates only insofar as she is a member of the body of Christ, who is a member of the Trinity and part of that Trinitarian life. Mm. Right. Um, whereas I think uh, growing up in the tradition that I grew up in and kind of non-denominational evangelicalism, worship was meant to sort of be an experience of the individual expressing his or her, um, gratitude or devotion or worship or petition to God. Right. right? Um, and that could be done in or outside of the church. And the reason we do it in church is a, because the Bible tells us to, um, and B because, you know, not all, all of us have the time or the money or the, um, resources to go to seminary and get a, get a education in the Bible. Um, and so liturgy or worship can kind of, as you're saying, I think that's how we can kind of get to a place where um, it gets reduced to maybe to kind of a this worldly phenomenon um, where the real natural supernatural interaction in kind of that pattern worship is between the individual and the Lord, uh, which is real and, and good. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's not the whole story. Um, if we're actually invited into this communal participation um, that actually, if we recognize that our only entryway into the life of the divine Trinity is through the body of Christ, um, through the church that it's, it's as the church that we are liturgists, it's as the church that we participate in the liturgy, um, then we begin to see, I think that the liturgy itself is this meeting place of the natural and the supernatural. Is that, again, I'm, I'm really good at getting into abstractions. Is that... <laughs> No, that, that's helpful. I think that's good. Yeah. Cause I, I definitely want to be clear that, you know, in my time as an evangelical, that's, that's where mm -hmm. I found Christ. That's where right. I was born again. Right. And so there was, there was real supernatural interaction there, but I think you summed it up well by pointing out that there's kind of that individual idea as opposed to this communal, um, um, participation that, uh, kind of separates those two things out. Um, right. Sure got anything? Oddly enough, I grew up as an evangelical Protestant as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I had two experiences, though. One was like the emotional driven, like, this is how we should feel. The other experience in the church was it really, I would say, uh, it was driven at like a thought life or the mind, like a mm -hmm. mental ascent. That was the worship service. And we wanted to think rightly about Jesus, which is right. good. And in the preaching, we want to see the text pointing to Jesus in the right way, which is good as well. Right. Uh, but I think there has to be a shift from the emotional and the, just the mental ascent to in what what's going on in worship, where it's not just a mental ascent and thinking rightly. It's actually uh, perhaps like an encounter with the person of Jesus. Right such that there's a union, a, a strengthening and a fastening of this union that we have as the church with Jesus. And it, Jesus is then the vehicle, the person through which we are brought into the Trinitarian life. I think of 1 John when it says yeah. God is love and 1 John 4, God is love and so on. And then it says 
this is love. God sent his son, who's a propitiation for our sins, so that he could live through us. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a picture of what's going on when, as the church, we're being brought into, in worship, the life of God, the, the worship of God, and that God is, in a sense, inhabiting us and turning our attention to him. And so it's more than just a mental ascent or an emotional Right. It's, it's this movement you're talking about from mm-hmm. not in God to in God. And um, I don't know if that's helpful or yeah. anything. And I think, too, like the the idea that the body of Christ is not an individual, but it is a communal coming together of, of Christians gathering also fosters that sense in which there's a participation because the life of the Trinity, as you pointed out, is one of communion with the three persons. Mm -hmm. And so we as an individual will never be able to fully grasp or participate in that unless we are in participation with each other um, as well. So, Right. If I say anything heretical, you just stop me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Likewise, likewise. Uh, Maybe maybe next, if we could just kind of... kind of go back a little bit and just talk about like, what is the theology of the liturgy? What, mm. what are, what is being communicated through the liturgy? Um, perhaps it would be helpful to say like, okay, what do we do practically on a Sunday morning in the liturgy? And what is that communicating? Sure. Yeah. We could do that too. That'd yeah. be less abstract, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That'd be good. Yeah. yeah. But you already hit on the, uh, the, the opening acclamation as right. well as the Curie. So yeah. 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 Um, so I think uh, just starting uh, kind of big picture, uh, we see in Hebrews 12, um, Hebrews 12, there's some, uh, there, there's a lot of debate about who wrote it and what it is and whatnot, but I think, um, and you can challenge me on this some other time. Um, but uh, I think that Hebrews is actually a sermon um, leading up to uh, Holy Eucharist. Um, and so when we get into ch- chapter 12, there's this, that's where we get the cloud of witnesses imagery and whatnot. Um, and uh, the author g- gets into this beautiful description of the mountain of God uh, where we have, and, and he says, we have come to the mountain of God, right? Um, I don't think he mean that means that in an abstract sense. I think he means that speaking to a congregation, we have come to the mountain of God. We find ourselves surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We find ourselves, um, he describes uh, the giving of the law and the angels and the spirits of those who have been made perfect. Um, and this is where we have come. And uh, if that's true, if that's a correct interpretation, uh, I think that's a really beautiful theological description of what we do when we come to worship, um, particularly the Holy Eucharist, is that we have actually come into the throne room of God. Um, there's a reason that we, um, in traditional churches, uh, there are steps leading up to um, the altar um, that was meant to convey because in in Old Testament uh, in the Old Testament world, um, you always commune with your God on the top of a mountain, yeah. and so churches were always very very um, intentional to build a small quote unquote mountain, um, a few steps uh, in their in their sanctuary um, as a sign that we are actually ascending the hill of the Lord where uh, His throne room is. Right, and so we see this in Revelation, um, Revelation uh, one and four where the Lord appears to John. Um, and it doesn't say that a window was opened above me so I could look up into heaven. It doesn't say that um, the Lord called me up. He says that the Lord spoke behind and he turns around and there was a, um, a window or a door into the throne room of God. Mm-hmm. And John is, John is actually um, 
careful to point out in chapter one that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when this happens, right? I think a lot of us uh, growing up in some charismatic circles thought that you know, we hear that we think, oh, he's off in his prayer closet praying in tongues or something. Um, but we know from actually uh, the ways that some of the early fathers spoke that um, the early church spoke of uh, being at liturgy in this way of being in the spirit. Um, so it's likely that John was actually um, presiding um, in worship with the exiles who were on Patmos when he had this experience. And so he comes, as we come to liturgy, we are actually entering into the throne room of God, which is what we say when we say that I open the acclamation, blessed be God, the father, the son of the Holy spirit and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. We are naming the fact that we have entered in, mm-hmm. right? Um, we're naming the reality that's unseen. Here we are. We have entered into the throne room of God and everything else that flows from that um, flows from the natural human response to arriving in the throne of God, right? We pray, we pray the college for purity. We're like, we know our, we, we cry out with Isaiah, right? Um, that woe is me. I'm, I am lost. Um, I have a man of unclean lips. And so we pray that the Holy spirit would cleanse us. Um, we hear the summary of the law. We pray for mercy. Um, and it's only then once we've prayed for purity, um, we've heard the law, we've prayed for mercy. Then we enter in with the Gloria. Um, and praising God. And only once we've expressed this almost like gushing forth of praise um, for the mercy of God uh, and allowing us to be in his throne room and not, and not uh, us not being killed, then are we able to sit and actually hear the word of the Lord? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what do you think? What do you think in there? Deacon Chandler? Yes. Beautiful. I love the way you're explaining it. And I, when you said in the acclamation, the opening act, we're stating what is a reality, mm-hmm. the kingdom of God, we're drawn into this throne room. I was just wondering, what is the st- distinction between that moment on, say, a Sunday morning in a sanctuary mm-hmm. and earlier or later that day? Right. To me, it would be the gathering of God's, the people called out. Right. Know, uh, coming together for this sacred moment. And um, anyhow. That's the only yeah. thing. But yeah, press yeah, on. absolutely. Yeah, this is this is so good. Um, yeah, I love I love that 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 imagery. I, I I I would not have ever thought that John would have been potentially in the midst of liturgical right. worship. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's pretty powerful. And, and yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then you've gotten to the sermon mm-hmm. earlier. You know. 28 minutes ago, you said the sermon is this picture of almost like Christ heralding the word, sh- sh- right. teaching really about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what do you think the role of the sermon is in the liturgy yeah. and, and its place in, in this kingdom of God encounter? Right. Yeah. Um, so one cool uh, clue as to the theological meaning of, of actually the reading of the gospel and the sermon Um in that part of the liturgy through actually the celebration of the Eucharist is um, traditionally at that point, right before the reading of the gospel, the missile stand would have, would have been on the south side of the altar and then would be moved to the north side um, as an indication that the gospel ministry has begun, right? Um, and then the gospel would be possessed into the people. Um, and so part of the story that the liturgy is telling is this is the part of the incarnation, Right. Um, the liturgy, the, the gospel book is processed into the midst of the people. The gospel is read in the midst of the peace, the people as a, um, a, a symbolic uh, reenactment of the word being made flesh and dwelling among us. Right. Um, and so the, the gospel book 
is, or the, the missile stand is moved from the south side of the altar to the north side of the altar because, and this is, I actually found this out recently, um, because in the ancient Near Eastern world, um, the gateway to hell was believed to have been in Philippi Caesarea in the north, which is actually where um, Jesus tells Peter, you know, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. Right. Um, it's likely that it's likely that like, so there is an actual like tourist attraction where you could go um, where there was this cave um, that you could actually like, there was believed to be the gates of Hades. Right. Um, and so it's possible that Jesus and his disciples were actually saying that there at that, that gateway. Um, yeah. And that's where Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ. And- right. Exactly. And so um, the reason that the missile stand would be moved to the North and traditionally uh, the gospel would, would be read actually facing the North side of the church as a way of proclaiming to the spirits that have been defeated um, Jesus's victory, right? Because um, the meaning of the word gospel in its original context was um, a political declaration of victory, right? That the emperor had conquered your town, and you now belong to him, right? Um, that's what the the euangelion. That's what that word meant um, in its context before the gospel writers sort of assim- co-opted it to say, actually, no, Caesar's not the emperor; Jesus is, um, and he has defeated the powers of death, right? And so, um, I'm, I'm getting really excited because this is really cool. Um, <laughs> so, theologically, what we see happening there is um, at this point in the liturgy we are participating in uh, from the reading of the gospel to the end of uh, Holy Eucharist. We are participating in Christ's victory over death and over the powers of sin. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and what we're saying is that because it begins with the incarnation, right? The, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us with the proclamation of the gospel in the midst of the people. We're saying that all of Jesus's ministry is redemptive. And we are invited to participate in that whole ministry, right? So the sermon is um, this, we are joining in and participating in Jesus's action of um, defeating the powers of sin and death and proclaiming his victory over them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good because I've often thought about the liturgy as being extremely gospel-centered, gospel-shaped, obviously. And then when you hear a sermon in the liturgy that is not gospel-centric or Christocentric as a sermon, right. I think, well, this is the only thing in the liturgy that's not liturgical. And so right. this the sermon has to be, from whether you're preaching the Old Testament or the Psalms or the Gospel or the New Testament reading, the key we have to maintain the gospel centrality of all of scripture and the Jesus right. uh, Christocentric nature of all of scripture mm-hmm. to be continuing that, that liturgical movement. And um, yeah, it's good. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this also highlights the fact that scripture itself um, is at home in worship. Um, we are used as post enlightenment Westerners to think that to us, to, discern the truth of something it has to be dissected and for something to be dissected it has to be taken out of its context killed and then opened up right Um, and so this is actually the approach of most modern biblical scholarship is that that scripture must be dissected right Um, so we open it up we take apart its parts we look at the original meanings of all these words what it meant in the original context and all of that is good knowledge right don't don't hear me saying that's worthless 
but to really understand the essence of a thing, you have to see it in its, in its home, in its context. Right. Yeah, there's sometimes in liturgy when, when we're worshiping, we read the, you know, the four lessons yeah. and then I'm sitting there about to go preach where I'm thinking, I don't know if I really need to preach this morning because the word has spoken so powerfully. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or there's times when I'm, when I'm slotted to preach and I'll have a whole sermon prepared. And then as I hear the four texts read in the context of worship, the meaning of the text just is totally like transformed. Um, and I, and I, I have to like make some serious adjust, adjustments to my homily as I'm walking from the, uh, the altar to the pulpit. Um, because it, the, the scripture really is the, it's the home. It's the, it's the natural habitat of scripture. Um, yeah, the, the word belongs to the church, not the right. scholar, you know? And so, right. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, yeah. And so it's just amazing seeing, um, and, and this, this gets to what Deacon Chandler is, is saying is that we, um, it will be difficult to see that all of scripture is Christocentric if we read it outside of the context of worship of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't read it outside of that context, um, any more than we shouldn't, um, dissect things and discover more about the world that God has created. Um, but in, as long as we're doing that, we're not, we're not able to see its true essence in the way that it, it's true meaning. Right. Um, if, and scripture really truly is about Jesus. Uh, and then that makes me think too, of the, uh, the formation of the canon. Mm-hmm. Where one of the guidelines as they're putting this canon together is, okay, what books are being used in the church? Right, exactly. The worshiping community, what are we using? And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's cool. Right. And this is why we see different churches having different canons, um, because in those regions, those are the, uh, in those, yeah, those books of the Bible were being used in worship, right? Um, so canon in the early church was used more descriptively than prescriptively. Right, which is how you can end up with the Orthodox having their canon in the West um, until the Reformation having our canon, and then Protestant uh, since the Reformation we have our canon. Um, this should be a descriptive thing rather than a prescriptive thing. Um, that these are the texts that the Church has been using using in worship. Um, I, probably, I probably opened a whole other discussion by saying. Yes. So moving on to the liturgy, then we end up with the the actual homily. Um, and, uh, in this context, the homily itself is a sacramental moment, right? Um, where, um, the preacher is participating in the spirit of Christ, um, and proclaiming the truth about him, God willing. Um, and just in case that's not true, that's why we have the creed afterwards or or depending (laughs) on where you are before, just, just to make sure that if anything heretical or not Christocentric is said, then we, you know, yeah, right. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of the this, the scripture as sacrament mm-hmm. because when we're expounding it in a Christocentric way, the way it's intended to be expounded, what's being communicated is the gospel of grace. Right. And what isn't sacramental, but that you know. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a very visible and outward sign of an inward and spiritual grace right there. Yeah. Yeah. And Even. that that grace prepares us to move then into the next the next part of. Right. No, I was just going to say too, and the even just the idea of the word, right? Word is typically something that we speak out loud with the intention that it's heard by somebody Mm -hmm. else. You know, it's not something that we have an internal um, dialogue with ourselves about. Um, And so, just that idea that the word is in the context of the church, 
the reason is again this idea of participation communal participation that when the word is is spoken it actually is going out into the hearts and ears of of those listening um, so right that's yeah really beautiful yeah definitely and this this may be a bit of a tangent but to get a bit more like even like a concrete um answer to what is liturgy um at least the christian liturgy um the christian liturgy is is actually a combination of the liturgy of the word um this is kind of basic for most most folks the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table um where we get that is actually from um again all the first christians were were jews um and took for granted jewish worship um and before the destruction of the temple they also took took for granted that you have synagogue worship and you have temple worship right um and uh synagogue worship was this was primarily the place where you hear scripture being read right so synagogue worship came into being because of the exile um when the temple was destroyed and temple worship was no longer accessible um and the god's people were, were searching for ways um to have worshipful encounters with him and if you don't have the don't have the the altar if you don't have the temple and sacrifice then what they found is um reading Torah and having it expounded um, was a, a great way of um, perpetuating their culture and their, their relationship with God, uh, but also um, a means of worship. Right. Um, it wasn't until obviously the, the second temple was made that temple worship was able to be restored. Um, and uh, I mean, for instance, you would, so there wasn't really reading of scripture and there certainly wasn't sermons or expounding scripture in temple worship. Right. You don't ever see in the Old Testament, you know, people walk away from a sacrifice like, man, those Levites really killed it today. You know, um, the the place of exposition of scripture was more in the synagogal worship. Um, and when the temple was destroyed, uh, you saw Judaism move um, exclusively into this, this sort of synagogue uh, word centric worship. What I think is really fascinating is that. Um, for a Jew, there's only one altar, right? That's the whole thrust of Deuteronomy is that there's one central place for altar worship, and that's at the temple. Um, but in the Gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus assuming that Christians will be worshiping around an altar, right? He says, when you bring your gift to the altar and you have an issue with your brother, leave your gift there and go settle the issue with your brother, right? Uh, Matthew apparently found this necessary to bring up um, decades after uh Christ's ascension. And most scholars think um, after the destruction of the temple, uh, Matthew still found it, found it um, necessary to tell Christians um, when you're worshiping at an altar, do this thing. Right. Um, and so we saw, we see that actually unique, um, this is where kind of Christianity and Judaism broke is that whereas the destruction of the temple happened, um, Judaism remained uh, with only liturgy of the word Whereas Christianity um, continued altar worship. Um, and the reason we could do that is because now um, the old sacrament, so to speak, of the body of God, the temple, has now actually, the, the real reality has come in the body of Christ, right? And so we no longer need the Jerusalem temple to worship at an altar. We now have the body of Christ, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, that that's a small apology uh, for um, worshiping at uh, at the table as a regular part of um, Christian worship. Yeah. And what you see Jesus do in his incarnation is he takes the word and says, this is me, word made flesh. Mm -hmm. And then he takes the sacrifice in the, the, the altar and says, this is me, the word given for you. And so now it's not, now both pieces are mm -hmm. just a 
wrap out his ministry. And, right. Um, yeah. It's interesting, too, how, you know, when he talks about when he institutes the, the Eucharist and he says, this is my body and then this is this is my blood of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Do this in remembrance of me. The, the New Testament, I think we sometimes do reduce that to the books of the New Testament as something. But Jesus says, do do this. So like the New Testament is something we do first and foremost, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, again, kind of captures the reality that rather than taking our scriptures and reading them, and that's our that's our personal time with Christ, it's context being within this liturgical worship of the church. The New Testament is expounded to the church and participated in at the altar. Um, and it's something we do, not just something we read. Um, right, but, right. Yeah, something we take for granted today is that um, everyone can have a Bible in their house, multiple Bibles, mm-hmm. even, you know, whereas especially when the New Testament was written, parchments were incredibly expensive and difficult to come by. Um, there's a reason that canon was developed within the church. Um, it's because, like, Pretty, pretty much only a church through the, the giving of all of its members could afford to have anything, anything close to a full Bible. Right. Um, and uh, so we, we can take for granted something that I don't think we should. Um, and it's that we can have a Bible um, in the privacy of my own home outside of public worship. Um, and uh, if, if we define the meaning of the Bible, um, outside of the liturgy, because I can read my Bible um, and have my personal relationship with Jesus here in my house and think that's the the sum total of what it means to be a Christian. Um, then we have to say then that God uh, waited to bestow upon the church after Gutenberg um, the fullness of the faith. Mm. Right. Um Whereas what we should do is take for granted that maybe God is intentional about becoming incarnate 1600 years before the invention of the printing press. Um, and if that's true, then it means that um, the meaning of scripture is actually a communal reality, yeah. right? You're hitting a hot topic for Jonah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But so we've talked about the sermon. Yeah. <laughs> Let, yeah. let, let's 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 talk about the Eucharist a little bit, because yeah. um, I think that that is um, especially for many who do come from an evangelical background. That might be the hardest thing to get your mind around that. This is not simply a symbol, I'm not saying it's not a symbol, but it's not simply a symbol. Right. And I think throughout kind of this whole conversation about the liturgy, the reality of the incarnation has been pretty prevalent to each and every piece. And I think especially here. We need to have a, a deep incarnational theology to grasp what is what is taking place uh, when we come to the altar. Um, so I would love for you to just open up and chat about that a bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think maybe one way, one way to approach this is um, through dialogue with what I know my reservations about having a high view of the of the Holy Eucharist was when I was in kind of a non-denom evangelical. Uh, tradition. Um, and Correct me if I'm wrong, or feel free to add to what I'm about to say, but I think I remember there being kind of two main issues. Um, the first is more theological, and it's that um, their sacrifice of Christ is once and for all, right? right. Um, and so this idea that um, there's this ritual act that we participate in that, if it's true, that the cup um, is 
poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and somehow, in some way, we are reenacting this, this cup um, being poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And that seems to jive against this idea that um, Christ sacrifices once and for all, right? Um, and uh, on the other hand, I think there's the reservation of, um, again, kind of this metaphor language, right? This is clearly a metaphor. Jesus didn't actually mean um, that this is his body and blood because that's impossible. That doesn't make sense, right? Um, and you often hear point, people point out, well, Jesus also called himself the door, you know, by which the, the sheep leave the, the sheep pen. Um, and clearly he didn't mean that he's actually a door, right? Um, or the vine or the, you know. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my issue with the second, the second thing is that um, the second point being this just doesn't make sense, right? Clearly Jesus isn't, isn't bread and wine. Um, is that's that's the same argument that's also used against like the virgin birth, yeah. For instance, you know that doesn't make sense, um, and that's a very post enlightenment sort of um, reservation, um, understandable, but it's a post enlightenment reservation. Um, and then the the interaction with the Holy Eucharist with sacrifice, I think, is the the definitely the weightier um, issue, and because um, if this is if we are saying this is actually got Christ's body and blood, part of the nature, the reason that it's significant that um, it's body and blood separated is because the only context in which you see body and blood separated um, is when the thing is being killed. Right. Um, and uh, which means it's sacrifice. Um, and if that's the case, then are we saying that Jesus's sacrifice on the cross is not sufficient? Right. Um and especially if you read that in light of um, the, in light of the Old Testament, right? Um, then we there seems to be a lot of factors pointing to um, the the idea that we should treat them, we should see the Holy Eucharist as a sacrifice, um, right? Where uh, so actually even in the Greek, when Jesus says, "Do this in remembrance of me." Um, that word is anamnesis. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, anamnesis was the word used for sin offering. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so Jesus is actually quite clear, clearly saying this, this is, this is do this as a sin offering of me. Right. Um, and uh, hence the forgiveness of sins, the hence the forgiveness of sins. Exactly. And just the, the clear fact that um, when a sacrifice is offered in the Old Testament, um, it's not just entirely burned. Um, actually, the the main point of the sacrifice is for the meat to be cooked, um, for the priest and for the family who brought the offering to eat the meal and have a communion meal with God. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so for Jesus' disciples sitting in that upper room, especially seeing at, as it was the feast of the Passover, um, where the sacrificial victim um, was offered and the people eat of the lamb. Right. Um all the indications of scripture seem to be saying um, Jesus is offering himself in the Eucharist as the sacrifice. And so the, the question seems to me, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, or if you want to go in a different direction, the question seems to, seems to me is how do we reconcile Hebrews saying it's a once and for all sacrifice and that the Eucharist um, is Jesus offering himself um, as a sacrifice. And I think there's several ways we, we can get at that if you guys want to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, so the, the, uh, is my body that clearly is this a metaphor or whatever that right. argument, the sacrifice. Right. And then the other one that I had to wrestle with is how can the presence of Jesus be located 
in right. the, in the host yeah. and in the chalice. Um, right, and that was John Calvin's main. This was this was the debate between John Calvin and Martin Luther. Right, right, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just briefly on that, and I'll try not to derail it too much. This is a subject I really, really enjoy talking about. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, have either of you read uh, George Hunzinger's book on Eucharist? No, I haven't. Okay, I highly recommend it. He's a Reformed theologian, but he basically, he tries to take the Lutheran concern to maintain that this is truly Christ yeah. with the more Reformed concern that Christ is located in heaven, his, he's bodily in heaven. Um, and he, he does this by drawing on Eastern Orthodox Eucharistic theology um, and comes to what I think is probably the best of of really what I think a lot of Anglicans strive for, which is this is real presence while also maintaining the, the Christology that is more um, found in, in the Reformed theology. Um, so he does a great job. He calls it trans-elementation. Um, hmm. And the idea is, again, one of participation. It's the idea that it's not so much that... So in transubstantiation, right, you have the idea more that Christ is coming and then there's a containment. And mm -hmm. in, in his view, transelementation would be that the bread and the wine are actually being elevated up to participate in Christ. And that is how Christ becomes present. Um, and we are elevated to participate in Christ through what the bread and the wine are participating in. Lift right. up your hearts. Right. Lift yeah, up your exactly. hearts. That idea. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he has this idea of ascent and participation as opposed to descent and containment. And if right. you're watching and don't know what I'm talking about, that's in the liturgy. Lift right. up your hearts. Mm -hmm. right. We lift right. them up to the Lord. So the Eucharist is this, as you said, this up the mountain. Ascent. Right. But I, right. I want to hear you talk about sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to, I want to comment on what you were just saying first though, because I think yeah. that's good. I mean, the whole, the, again, like Deacon Chandler pointed out, if we have ascended the mountain when we come into the liturgy, um, then the spatial is issue isn't an issue because what we've said is that we'll actually know we're there. Right. Yeah, right. That's a, um, that's a good like presupposition or like point to make right. at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So actually we have arrived. We're in the throne of God. Jesus's body is there. Right. Um, and I love, uh, there's a prayer in the, um, Sarum rite for the Holy Eucharist, which was um, the the main Latin text that Thomas Cranmer translated um, to make the first um, Book of Common Prayer. And uh, there's a, a prayer in the Sarum rite that didn't make it into uh, Cranmer's translation um, that it essentially invokes a cherubim to come down and take the elements from the altar and carry them in um, to the throne room of God. Right. I think it's beautiful. And it's a beautiful way of saying um, spatially, we have actually entered into yeah. the kingdom of God. And so there is no distance between this bread and wine and between Christ and his body and blood. Um, and uh, the issue, I think, primarily with transubstantiation is this idea that in order for Christ's body and blood be present, then the substance of bread and wine has to be annihilated and replaced. Right. In um, this I think really gets at the, this almost negates the, the meaning of the gospel, which is why I think the, um, the 39 articles say that transubstantiation um, is abhorrent to the nature of a sacrament. Uh, because if our hope is, as Second um, Peter 1, 4 says, to partake in the divine nature, mm. right? That is, our, that is our end. That is what we are aiming for. What that means is that when I am fully united to Jesus, I am more myself than I ever could be without him. Yes. 
right? But if we're consistent with transubstantiation, what that means is that for the presence of Christ to be fully present, created stuff has to be gone, right? And that's actually far more like um, the state of nirvana yeah. in Hinduism, um, that in order for me to gain union with the one, um, I have to abrogate myself. I have to empty myself, right? Whereas Christianity, we would say that actually when I am fully united to Jesus, I am never more truly myself than in that moment, mm-hmm. right? In the same way that, we, so what we, by extension, what we would say is that in the Eucharist, um, when this bread and wine has been united to the presence of Christ in his, in his kingdom, that's, that's the most true bread that there ever has been. And that's the most true wine that there ever has been, right? And that's what bread and wine will be like in the kingdom of God when it comes, right? It'll be. Um, and so, yeah. Um, that's so strong. The, that's strong. Yeah. That's, it's yeah, beautiful. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's essentially what we're saying when, when St. Paul says that in first Corinthians 15, that eventually Christ will be all in all. Mm-hmm. That's what we're getting at. What God is about is redeeming the whole world. Um, and right. you can almost look at the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, there, almost as like first fruits. Right. Um, what we see happening with the bread and the wine there. Um, is this bread and wine is becoming all in all Christ while not being any less bread and wine in the same way when Christ comes and, and he is all in all, this world won't be any less than what it is. It'll actually be far more truly the world that it was meant to be yeah. without sin, right? Um, without all of its failures to be the world that God made it to be. Anyway, I'm preaching. Yeah. Um, That's beautiful. Bread, bread without beautiful. gluten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, sacrifice, I think is, um, there's a lot of ways to get at it. I mean, one way you can point point out is, um, we tend to think of sacrifice. We tend to think of, um, sacrifice for sin, right? Um, whereas actually the most common sacrifice that the old Testament expects is, is Thanksgiving sacrifice. Right. And that's actually what Eucharist means is Thanksgiving. Uh, Eucharist Deo, uh, means, um, I give thanks. Right. Um, and, uh, if, if that's the case, then at least we should, we should be, um, moved, uh, in one sense to see the, the, um, the Eucharist as a Thanksgiving sacrifice. Um, and now, uh, now that sin is no longer concerned, we have been cleansed, um, in baptism. Um, we've been washed in the word, um, even in the liturgy, right. Um, through the reading of scripture and through the proclamation of the gospel. Um, we, it's true. We no longer need a sacrifice for sin. The once and for all sacrifice um, of Christ is is sufficient. And now we we have been cleansed and restored as priests of the kingdom of God to offer the thanksgiving sacrifice that we were always made to offer. Right. The universal priesthood. We all show up at that Eucharist, and this is why, um, as a priest, I I prefer personally celebrating um, uh, ad orientum um, with facing with the people. Um, is I like to say, like, I am joining you. I am, I am one of you. We are all facing the same direction. We are all offering um, this Thanksgiving sacrifice together. And not to say that there's not merits to other ways of celebrating, but that's one, that's one reason why it's very significant to me. Um, because what we're doing at the Eucharist is we are, um, we are actualizing the reality that we have been saved, not just from sin, but saved to our vocation as image bearers, as the universal priesthood. Mm. Right. So we come now together. We are, we are now able to enter into the throne of God 
um, and offer him the Thanksgiving sacrifice of the body and blood of his son. Right. Um, And then, um, yeah, gosh, it's just, this gets into what does it mean to be human? um, And how are we being habituated into the kind of, the kind of human that we are made to be um, and that we will be fully in the, in the kingdom of God. Um, Let's, let's touch on that because in that initial, um, that, that statement you gave regarding what is liturgy, the end there was the idea of this deification. Right. Um, what, what does that mean? Cause you know, I think for me, when I was an evangelical, the first time I heard that language, I immediately went Mormons, you know, like right. that was immediately what I thought. But as you study it, you recognize that it's not, it's not that there's there, the deification we're talking about is a participation in the divine nature as, as St. Right. Peter says. Yeah. Um, but what does that mean? How is the liturgy facilitating that um, in us? And, and how are we moving towards that end? Right. Yeah. You want to say something before I get going again? You can channel just, just thinking about <clears throat> this idea of the kingdom of priests gathering mm-hmm. together, facing the altar, mm-hmm. in participating in this Eucharistic Thanksgiving, the sacrifice of Thanksgiving, and yeah. then tying that with the new Jerusalem where the the people of God, the citizens of God are on the throne is God and the lamb. And this idea that the sacrifice of Christ is a present reality for Mm -hmm. all, for eternity. Yeah. Never known apart from the sacrifice. And so why not at the Eucharist would we, why would we want to know him apart from the sacrifice? Right. Um, yeah. That's just that's what I was thinking. Yeah. But. Totally am. Yeah. I, I think about too in Revelation, John talks about how he beholds a lamb who looks as though he was slain from the foundation of the world. And right. so there's this idea that there's this sacrifice from the foundation of the world. Yeah. And so in a sense, Christ is um his once for all sacrifice is an eternal sacrifice. Right. Um and, and if his so, sacrifice is the only thing worthy of God's glory, mm-hmm. what what sacrifice would we want to participate in if it's not right? Yeah. Yeah. The blood and body that he has offered. Yeah. yeah. So this even allows us to get into like, let's say for sure the Eucharist is a sin offering, right? Um, the reason it's not that reason that do, that doesn't um, contradict the once and for all sacrifice of Christ is because um, like you're saying, Christ or Christ is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, uh, which means that it's outside of time. Right. right. Um, and it's, uh, in, it's rooted in history. Right. But it's an eternal reality. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, St. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 10 um, says, um, I forgot the ex- exact phrase, but the, the sense of the Greek is that we are, we are a people for whom times overlap. Um, upon we, uh, those of us who uh, upon the end of the age has come. Is what Saint Paul says. Um, in the sense of that, in the in the Greek, is again, this, this, there's overlapping of of ages. There's an overlapping of time for us Christians, and, and that's part of the sense of the already not yet, right? Yeah. Um, but what that also means is that in this time, in this age, the secular age, um, the eternity of God is perforating every moment, right? Um, and if the sacrifice, if the once and for all sacrifice of Christ exists in the eternal life of God, that means that the 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 sacrifice of Christ can perforate every single moment 
of of this time of this age right yeah and i think the eucharist liturgy captures this when we say you know we join you with angels and archangels. yeah exactly and all the company of heaven who forever sing this song that's not a future like someday forever that's a eternal reality all the yeah. saints of god participating in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving forever and so right yeah yeah and an image that I'll, I'll use often when talking with people is um if you've seen uh um interstellar mm-hmm. uh, the movie there's the there's the end i could get into the christian imagery of that movie another time um but uh in the end i'm gonna spoiler alerts when cooper falls into the black hole right um he ends up in a tesseract uh which um is a is a a three-dimensional rep- representation of a four-dimensional space right so it basically means that he's moving through time um and so in that scene he's in one moment of his life, he is simultaneously present to multiple moments of his, every moment of his daughter's life. And so you see that actually earlier in the movie, when this ghost was moving in her room, it was actually her dad from the future um, as he's present in this black hole. Um, and I use this as an image because so interestingly, when you collapse a tesseract into two dimensional space, um, it's a cross. Um, so Salvador Dali's uh, depiction of, of Christ depicts Christ crucified on the hypercube, which is a, a tesseract collapsed into two-dimensional space. Um, but uh, you see this image where Cooper, in one moment of his life, is simultaneously present to every moment of his daughter's life. In this, and I use that as an illustration of this. In this one moment on the cross, Christ sacrificing himself um, for the forgiveness of sins, he is simultaneously present in every single celebration of the Eucharist, if not every moment of history. Yeah. Right. right? Um, so that's how we can say this 100%, this is an anamnesis, a sin offering, um, a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. Yeah. And yet it's not belying that Christ's sacrifice is once and for all and all sufficient. And on that, I too, I think you would almost have to say that if we, if we take, the kind of logic that I think is sometimes applied to that idea of once for all means once for all, we can't say that this in any sense is a sacrifice. If we take that to its logical conclusion, then all of us are hopeless because the gospel has to be applied in time to us. The sacrifice of Christ has to be implied in in time. And I'm here 2000 years later and Mm -hmm. I put my faith in Christ and I'm trusting that his sacrifice is made efficacious for me. And right. so in a sense, his sacrifice in just the conversion and coming to baptism mm-hmm. is, is made efficacious in that moment. And so yeah. most What's Christians would acknowledge that, that that is a reality. And so why not, why not acknowledge then it's a reality, too, that we are participating in the sacrifice of Christ yeah. when, we are, when we offer the Eucharist? Right, yeah. And this actually gets to why in Colossians, St. Paul can make this really weird statement that makes a lot of us uncomfortable, where he says that in his sufferings, he is making up what is lacking and the sufferings of Christ, mm-hmm. right? Um, on a surface reading, if what we're talking about is true, or sorry, if what we're talking about is not true, if there isn't this overlapping of times, if there isn't this sense of participation of the body of Christ in what Christ actually does, um, then what Paul has said is that Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient. His suffering wasn't sufficient. It was lacking, and it needed Paul's suffering to, to, to fill up what was lacking, right? Right. Um, or if what we're saying is true, that what that means, and this is what's mind-blowing, is that not only does Christ's once and for all sacrifice perforate time so that now, today, we can celebrate Holy Eucharist and, and that sacrifice is present, but actually, 
it works in reverse as well. That our sufferings as the body of Christ is the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Right. And this is why martyrdom is such an incredible thing because um, a martyr is not just suffering in this moment in history. That is actually the, the body of Christ suffering on the cross. Every moment that a, that a martyr suffers for the gospel. Yeah. Right. That's what Paul's saying. That's the only way that you can actually read that, read that passage and it not be saying Paul saying that Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient. What he's saying is that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, but that includes the suffering of his body. Yeah. Right. And the the yeah. suffering of our bodies as well. Yeah. Because they have been united to his body. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Which can pr provide a segue into the question you asked 10 minutes ago um, <laughs> about this deification. Right. Yeah. Um, if, uh, if salvation is um, union with Christ, that he may be all in all we really have to ask ourselves how seriously we take that. Right. Do I believe that when all things are made new, I will be one with Christ. Do I believe that the image of the one flesh relationship between husband and wife is an accurate analogy for the relationship between Christ and his church? Will I be one flesh with Jesus? in the new Jerusalem? If the answer is yes, and that means that I, again, like I said earlier, without losing my individual identity as, as Harmon, I will become Jesus. Right. Right. Um, the ancient church taught said, uh, we will become by grace what God is by nature. Um, unless we think that this is some sort of like uh, pantheism, um, again, the, the difference between us and Buddhism or Hinduism, so to speak, is that we won't lose ourselves. We don't get absolved into God when we join him. Um, we actually become more fully ourselves. Um, that my only hope for being the harmon that God made me to be is my being fully united to him. Um, so that when someone points to me, they might, they might see Jesus. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's this word deification, becoming God is kind of is how the, the church fathers put it. Um, it's actually really fascinating. I just heard this quote this past week. Um, when a pagan uh, official um, confronted St. Basil of Caesarea um, and said, why don't you, why don't you worship um, these, these idols? Why don't you worship these gods of the state? Um, he said, I am bidden to become God. Why would I worship something beneath what I am called to join into, mm. right? Um, I am called to union with Christ. Um, anything beyond Christ is beneath me. Why would I worship? Why would I worship that? Right. Um, and so deification is this idea that eventually Christ will be all in all, right? All things will be unified to him, um, which means that they will become more fully themselves without sin without brokenness, um, that the world and all of us who live in it, um, who uh, come to Christ and, and are united to him, will um, will be made, made whole. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Amen. Yeah, St. Athanasius, the God became man so that man might become God. Kind of right. the idea that the incarnation is 
kind of God's exclamation point that this mm-hmm. this cosmos is is being lifted and elevated into something into Him Himself, right? right. Um, yeah, that, that we might participate in Him. Um, right. th- this might get off on a on a on a total um, philosophical <laughs> sidecar, but um, what are your thoughts on the orthodox distinction of essence and energies? Do you find them to be helpful? Do you find them unhelpful? Um, I'm just curious. Do you want to go first, Deacon, Deacon Chandler? I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> I am not an expert in this, in that distinction, but what little reading I've done, I think I begrudgingly agree. I say begrudgingly because I love St. Thomas Aquinas <laughs> and uh, the distinction between essence and energies was sort of um, articulated as a, as a critique right. of St. Thomas Aquinas. I love St. Thomas Aquinas. Gosh, He's my guy, but I do think he's wrong on this point. Um, and uh, you and me are in the same yeah. boat. That's that's exactly me. Th- yeah. Thomas Aquinas, my favorite theologian for yeah. sure. Yeah. And and yet I do see just a, a very. Um, I see the essence energy distinction as being helpful right. in conveying what we're saying and also what we're not saying. Yeah. When and we if, talk about if I'm following your train of thought, I think the reason that you're asking me that is because. Um, the problem with deification, if St. Thomas is right, that if um, God's energies and his essence are the same, energies meaning like meaning his, his action in the world, right? His activity in the world. Um, uh, St. Thomas uh, said, said that, said that his God's essence and his energies, his activities are, are one um, in a, in a, with a desire to preserve the divine simplicity um, not introduced. So the problem being that if, if God is not simple, if he's not one, that means he's composite, um, of at least two different substances. And if God's composite, that means that implies that there's a composer of those composite parts, which means that God is not God, that there's actually someone hired who composed him. Right. Right. Um, so out of a desire to, to smooth out that philosophical wrinkle, uh, he said that God's essences and energies are one. The problem with that is that if God's essences and his energy, if his essence and his energies are one, that means that his energy that pulls us into relationship with him and draws us into union. If that's one with his essence, that would mean that when we are made one with him, we become his essence. Right. Which would be pantheism. Right. Right. I guess we, there's always a different, a um... creator creature distinction. Yep. Yep. Right. Right. And so the, the Orthodox position preserves is an attempt to preserve that. Um, creator creation distinction, um, which I think is good. Um, at that point, though, we're at such an abstract level that I start getting a headache. And, uh, <laughs> and I guess we'll find out, or maybe we won't because we can't understand God's essence. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you have anything you wanted to add? I was just going to say, we've talked a lot theologically what is the Eucharist and how, mm. how do we come to this? Um, but what is its role? in the Mm. liturgy why is it so central why is it the mountaintop and why do so many people say when you gather really that's where the whole thing's headed is is the table Uh, as opposed to like my protestant upbringing is the sermon that's that's the mountaintop right why do so many people say it's actually the table and what is the role in the liturgy yeah so this this gets to um again what what uh, Jonah, you were asking earlier is that what is that relationship between deification and what we're doing at, at the Eucharist being, becoming those priests. Right. And so if, 
if the idea is that we were all made um, in the garden to be priests of God, um, that our vocation of what it means to truly be human is that we take the stuff of creation that God has made and we offer it to him as a thanksgiving sacrifice. And then we take, and, and as we see with sacrifices, what we offer to God, God unites himself to and then communes with us through, right? And therefore taking that communion and offering it to the world, right? That's the, that's the vocation that we were made for, right? Um, and so the, the fall was um, taking that, um, that function we serve as this crux, offering the stuff of creation to God um, and then God uh, conveying himself to creation through us. Um, the fall was us essentially creating a closed circuit, Right. Where we took the stuff of the world rather than offering it to ourselves and made it, we made it raw material for our own consumption. Right. Um, then what we see happening at the Eucharist is us being restored to our original vocation, um, our humanity being made new. Right. Um, justification is language that often gets used for um, in the West. We tend to think of this as like us getting saved. Right. We have been justified as in court. Um, however, scripture also talks about things being justified, right? The temple is justified when it's cleansed. And so I, I think um, a better understanding of what justification means is restored to proper order, mm-hmm. restore, restored to proper place and function in the kingdom of God, right? Yeah. So when the temple is, when the temple is justified, um, as, as it's spoken of in, in the Old Testament, that means that all the sin that has defiled the temple is washed away so that the temple can once again operate um, the way that it's meant to, right? When we are justified, um, that's us being restored to our place in the kingdom of God as God's priests, right? Amen. And that's who we are because we are made in the image of God. And who is the image of God? Christ. Jesus, right? Um, and so what, what's happening in liturgy as we offer the sacrifice, as we are behaving as priests, and like I said er- earlier, as we're being shaped to approach every table now as a Thanksgiving offering is that we are becoming Jesus. Yeah. It just makes me think of um, Paul's letter to the Colossians where he's saying, you know, first couple chapters is this is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. Mm. And then chapter three, if this is true, set your mind on Christ and the things that are above. And then he says, therefore put to death these worldly things so that, in my mind, thinking liturgically, the set your mind on things above, that's the acclamation, putting to death the worldly things. This is the, the confession of sin. It's the curie. It's, it's all of these things. And then it says... Um, Being renewed in the yeah, image of our creator. Right, which would right. be Christ. And so yeah. that's the, that would be the end. And then he says, but Christ is all in all. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, that would be... Hmm. What's so happening what, at the Eucharist. Right. So what we're doing is we are synergistically ascending in a deification, right? We are, um, by offering the sacrifice of the Eucharist, we are um, practicing our humanity. We are practicing our Jesus-shaped humanity because he is the priest, right? Eternally, he is the priest in the divine life of the Trinity. And when we practice that, we are, we are becoming, we are, uh, the Lord is chiseling us um, to become conformed to the image of our creator, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So that someday when we enter into the new Jerusalem, that's who we are. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's why it's essential that in even in the Eucharist, the table part of the service, there is that sense of everyone participating. Because if it's just a drama up at the top of the stage, yeah. you lose that visual that is intended. That right. or an act, not the visual, the actuality that's intended. Right. Um, in the service. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This has been a great conversation. I have I have one more kind of question that might be slightly controversial, but um, in watching the the little trailer for uh, Via Catechesis, mm -hmm. I noticed lots and lots of icons. Oh yeah, let's go. I, I love icons. I have yeah. tons all over my house. I know Anglicans are kind of up in the air about mm -hmm. the view of icons. What is the role of iconography mm -hmm. in 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 liturgy? Right. Yeah. Um, so to name the elephant in the room, right, the, the issue with icons is the second commandment, right? Or depending on who, who's trans, who's interpreting the 10th commandment could be the first commandment. Um, but the idea, you know, do not make for yourself any graven image, do not bow down to them, um, do not worship them. Um, but, and so to answer that question, I'll kind of start actually from there. We see God give his people this commandment. Don't make any graven images. Don't bow down to them. And then, the, and then in the same, um, breath, so to speak, uh, God tells his people how to construct the tabernacle, right? And what is the focal point within the Holy of Holies? The, like the cherubim and all the... It's the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim, cherubim. these carved cherubim overshadowing the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, now, if we are going to be uh, superficial readers, we think, oh, here's a contradiction. Right. Um, but we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would God give those directions? Assuming that giving him the benefit of the doubt, um, reading charitably, why would God give those directions when he has just said, don't make any graven images? Right. And we get our hint um, in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 uh, and, um, and in Hebrews, where, um, especially in Hebrews, where we're told that the tabernacle was a shadow of the heavenly tent. Right. Um, and so what the, the goal was, God gave these directions for the tabernacle and the contents of the tabernacle. So as to say, this is what my heavenly throne room looks like. And I'm giving you these directions so as to habituate you to recognize these environs as the throne room of God. Right. Um, and so then with Isaiah six, we see Isaiah um, actually has a vision of the throne room and he sees Throne spirits. He, he sees a seraphim in that instance overshadowing the throne. He sees an altar. He sees incense. Uh, he sees the train of the train of God's uh, robe filling the throne room. Um, and what, what do we see in the tabernacle? We see the altar. We see the incense. We see these cherubim, these throne guardians, overshadowing the footstool of God, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, in Revelation four, we see that John enters into that exact same throne room, but there's a key difference. He sees the 24 elders there. He sees humans mm -hmm. in the throne room, right? The difference is the incarnation has happened. Mm -hmm. Humanity has now been brought into the throne room, right? God himself, Christ himself, um, with a human body, a redeemed human body, sits on the throne. And we have the elders um, and countless others throughout the book of Revelation who are in the throne room, right? And so iconography, the reason we don't see icons before the Old Testament is because the incarnation hadn't happened within this secular time. Um, and, uh, and 
the saints hadn't been brought into the throne room yet. But now we have icons, at least at, in my church, we have icons because uh, um, when we now look into the throne room, we would, see, we, if we could actually have eyes to have the vision that St. Saint, Saint John saw, we would see people, hmm. right? Um, and so the presence of icons in, in sanctuaries of Christian worship ought to operate in such a way that we see um, the actual throne room. And actually we see these saints who are now, because they have passed through death, they have um, the wages of sin that is death no longer holds um, power over them. They're now fully united to Jesus, right? So that when I see them, they are a sacrament of Jesus. Right? When I see them, I can say, I see St. Anthony, but I also see Jesus. I see St. John, but I also see Jesus. I say, I see St. Mary um, and I also see Jesus, which is why we, we treat them reverently, right? Yeah. That, that would that would be what I would say. Yeah. That, See, would, that would be what I would say as well. So Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you have any thoughts on that, Chandler? On icons or what he said? On what he said or icons in general? Yeah, no, it's say? great. It's great. I haven't heard it articulated exactly that way, but that's mm. uh, really helpful. We do via Adamas and mm -hmm. love it, and people have really benefited catechetically from mm. the use of icons. Praise God. Yeah, yeah, so it's been yeah. really a blessing. Why don't we, just to close, touch on that. You you developed via catechesis. Just right, like, yeah. How does that relate to this discussion of the liturgy? Yeah, so um, via catechesis, for those uh, listeners who don't know, is a, it's a curriculum for teaching the Anglican Catechism. Uh, it started with, uh, honestly, I think, busy work that my uh, my rector gave me. Um, it's, a, it's a passion project of his that he sort of developed. Um, and when he started church planting, didn't have the time to complete. And so he kind of handed this off to me and um, allowed me to make it my own. And so I'm very indebted to Father Justin, uh, my rector, who um, who gave me this project. But uh, yeah, it's it's an attempt to sort of honestly teach what we've been talking about um, this entire time. Um, to teach the catechism, um, which teaches all the essential you know truths of the faith um, through the one lens of the kingdom of God, um, the gospel of, that the kingdom of God is at hand, um, and the fact that we are made to be priests of that kingdom. Um, and so it looks at the, the meta narrative of scripture um, that tells the story of that kingdom um, and our place in it um, as we've fallen and as we've been restored. Um, it looks at the Apostles' Creed through the light of um, the, the gospel of the kingdom and God making us to be his priests invited into his divine life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, it looks at the, the Lord's prayer as imitation of relationship prayer as, as the invitation of relationship of the priests of God, um, worshiping him and giving him praise. And then, uh, the 10 commandments as the life of that kingdom, um, and the way that we are, we are made to, to live, um, in the kingdom of God. And then finally, um, it turns to, uh, kind of developing a rule of life in light of everything we've discussed. How are you particularly going to practice your priesthood? in your life, looking at really concrete stuff. Like what's your prayer life going to look like? Um, what is your, like, what, what's your relationship with food going to look like? What's your relationship with your spouse? If you're married um, or with your community, if you're celibate um, really wanting to push like the most practical questions um, so that people aren't left with a whole bunch of theological abstractions and then um, kind of left to fend, fend for themselves um, and practicing it. Um, yeah. And so I have the, uh, the honor of being published with uh with Anglican House um, Publishers. And uh, I think I finally have a somewhat a, a soft date um, sometime either this fall or uh, early the fourth quarter 
we'll be seeing that published um, with Anglican House. Um, and uh, hopefully it'll be a resource that'll be helpful for the church. Yeah, that's great. And you t intentionally do that before Sunday liturgy, mm -hmm. Eucharist, yeah. so that what they're learning, that the catechumens would immediately begin putting into practice. What right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And the, the actual teaching takes place within the context of morning prayer. Um, at least when, where I teach it, it can be used in any of the daily offices. Um, but really to, to emphasize that, um, again, we are... We, we are made to be priests um, to practice what we're teaching, so to speak. Um, and uh, the discussion um, it's, it's less teaching as it is dialogue. Um, uh, so that the idea is that the catechist is actually treating um, the catechumens for what they are um, co-creative priests of the kingdom of God. Um, and, uh, and as Deacon Chandler already pointed out, um, we begin the discussion by looking at an icon um, as more of maybe an embodied way um, in a less left brain way of getting at, um, the faith. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, this has been a, a joyful conversation. Um, yeah. I feel, I feel like we could probably go on another two, three hours and Easy. barely scratch the surface. But, um, I think for most people, this is probably more than enough for at least a little bit. Um, but yeah, thank you both very much yeah. for, for coming on and having this discussion. Um, yeah, as you. we close, are there any just summarizing thoughts that you'd like to leave, uh, the audience with? I think any anything that I would have to say, I think, is um, really invitational. Um, if uh, if you're listening to this and um, maybe you have reservations about liturgical worship, you haven't participated in it. Um, the only way to really learn about it is to do it. Um, and so, um, if you can find a copy of Compline, um, it's a short service. It's twelve it takes twelve minutes to go through. Um, you can start there if you want to, if you're, if you're, uh, like me and you always want to do the hardest thing first, then go for morning or evening prayer. Um, and just commit to one office in a, a day and give it a shot for three, three months, give it a chance to shape you. Um, and, uh, because I had a parishioner who, um, came to, uh, father Justin, um, complaining that, you know, these aren't my words. Um, this doesn't feel authentic. This doesn't feel like it's expressing what I'm actually coming to God with. Um, and Father Justin gave him this challenge: say it every say say Compline every night for three months, and then come back to me. Um, and uh, the guy came back to him and said, "These are my words now." Mm -hmm. um, that he was shaped in a, in a way that actually, uh, um, yeah, changed his life. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. I was going to say a similar thing. Find a find a time to participate in a liturgical word. The first encounter I had with liturgy was at a Greek Orthodox church, and mm. I just knew walking in, even before I got into the I don't know what they call it, but the sanctuary. Um, I was like, man, something something's up here that I've never experienced before. Yeah, and it wasn't just the experience. It was I couldn't put words on it then, but it was just as a Christian, as a, a member of the priesthood of all believers, it was mm -hmm. a sense of, this is what I should be up to. And yeah. uh, slowly became Anglican. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very similar to me too. Yeah. I would just extend that invitation as well. Cause mm -hmm. I was happily an evangelical for many years, but my mm -hmm. first encounter with liturgy was also a Greek Orthodox church. And it, it, the whole conversation we've been talking about really captures what I experienced when I walked in there, I knew just in the core of my being that I was ascending a mountain into the actual throne room of God. 
And that um, experience just left me just knowing like there's something here that, that I need to pursue. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it's beautiful. We, you pray the Lord's prayer, you know, kingdom come. Yeah. And your, earth your as it is in heaven. In yeah. That, so. Amen. Yeah. Well, thank you both for your time. This has been a joy and yeah, maybe we'll have you. to do it again sometime. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Good to see you again. Yeah. Likewise. Take care.